Well, good morning again, Chevrolet Baptist Church. It's good to be back with you guys again. And as we begin, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that the power of your word comes not from the ink and the paper of these printed Bibles that we hold in our hands or from some sort of creativity or rhetoric or passion from a a preacher or even from time or intensity that we're going to give now to learning from your word. Instead, Lord, we confess together that the power of your word works when the Holy Spirit is the one doing the work inspiring these texts to our souls. So we ask that your spirit would work through these words as we read and are instructed this morning. Lord, comfort us, challenge us, correct us, change us. Lord, inspire us into action and obedience and deepen our faith to trust you more, God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, if you have your Bible or another copy of God's Word that's around you, go to John chapter 4. We're going to jump right in this morning, page 888 in the black Bibles that are around uh, the chairs near you. And for us to see the fullness of what's happening in this narrative as we begin, I'm going to start reading, and would you read along with me, in chapter 4, verse 1. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where will you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not have to be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you to be a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming 
when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just a few things to note in John 4 as we orient ourselves together in this narrative. First, in what we just read there in the first 26 verses in John 4, we see that Jesus' conversation with this woman pivots from a conversation about water to that of worship. And seemingly right before our eyes in this narrative, we see this Samaritan woman was confronted and she was convicted and then apparently converted as Jesus discloses himself there in verse 26 that he is in fact the Messiah that she spoke about. Another thing to note from this, uh, this account here in John 4 is it is the first recorded instance of cross-cultural evangelism in the New Testament. Although the gospel was first preached to Israel, you can see that in verse 22, salvation is from the Jews, it would not be exclusively preached only to Israel. And so we see here in, in real time in John 4, the inbreaking of God's plan to save both Jews and Gentiles as Jesus systematically sort of breaks down racial, ethnic, religious, even moral tensions, and in so doing, the very makeup of God's kingdom is changed for all eternity right here in this moment. But in this narrative, Jesus is not only ministering to this woman with the truth of who he is, consistent with how John the Apostle writes in his gospel, there's another storyline that's being weaved into John 4. As Jesus continues on to teach, look again as we pick up here in verse 27. Verse 27 says, Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and she went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So in verses 27 to 30 here, if you look back in, uh, earlier in the chapter, verse 8, the disciples go to get food, likely kosher food, because they're in a place where uh, it would be hard to find some kosher food in Samaria. And then they come back, honestly, just quite dumbfounded there. You can see it in verse 27. Why were they marveling at this interaction between Jesus and the woman? Well, the surprise of the disciples may not have been merely that Jesus was talking with a Samaritan woman, which, of course, would have been unusual for any Jewish person. Uh, perhaps uh, their shock would have reflected the, the rabbinic tradition of that day, which specified that no rabbi, rabbi should ever speak uh, to a woman, and certainly not in a sort of private matter. And then looking at verse 28, we know that this woman kind of came just to seek water at the well, uh, to be undisturbed in the middle of the day, right? The, the, the most unlikely time to go to the well, right there in the sixth hour, right at midday. But after meeting Jesus, just like the disciples that left their nets, she leaves her water jar 
and begins to proclaim Jesus back in her village. You can see in verse 29, she essentially asks, you don't suppose that this could be the Messiah, could you? Was she unsure? Was she confused? Well, the men she probably was speaking to were the the elders of Sychar. Uh, They probably wouldn't have accepted a theological interpretation from a woman of uh, of her reputation. And so she's kind of questioning. You don't suppose that this is the Messiah, do you? I mean, he told me everything that I ever did. But then in verse 30, we see that this is how the good news of the gospel of Christ works in a really beautiful way. The word of Christ first confronts our sin. The spirit convicts of our sin. And then repentance and belief, through repentance and belief, a person is converted into a right relationship with God. Implicitly, that believer believes and then tells. And inevitably, as we see in this narrative, many more come and see who Jesus is to test what he has claimed about himself as the savior of the world. That's just all context for uh, for John 4. But the thing that I love the absolute most about this entire chapter is that Jesus here is ministering not just to the outsider, the Samaritan woman, but what Jesus is doing in these moments is actually he's ministering to his insiders as well. He he pivots yet again to, to minister to his disciples. And it's in this transition point between uh, verse 30 and verse 31, we see Jesus pivoting to instruct his disciples. That's what we're going to get the most out of this morning. If you're anything like me, in your walk with Christ, you've experienced and felt the challenges of trying to be a faithful evangelist in your personal relationships. Whether with people near or far, sometimes, truthfully, evangelism can just be a little bit awkward. Almost as awkward as the disciples walking up in this conversation that Jesus is having with this woman. If you're anything like me, you've probably felt internally self-conscious about your evangelism or lack thereof. And true confession, sinfully, I have just shied away from sharing the gospel oftentimes when the Lord has provided opportunities for me. Sometimes uh, wrong thinking has tempted me to kind of just soft pedal the gospel or sadly just entirely stay silent when the Lord is clearly bringing out an opportunity for me to teach or share or discuss or question about him. Most likely you've probably heard uh, this quote that's associated with St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, Preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Raise your hand if you've heard that before. Yeah, quite a few. In those moments, I'm tempted to believe that lie, that somehow I could simply let my life speak the gospel. What a deficient perspective St. Francis had there. What a bad plan for our lives, right? What a bad plan for evangelistic lives. Preach the gospel at all times, but only sometimes, if necessary, use words? And that completely flies in the face of what the scripture teaches, Romans 10.14 explains it like this. How can someone call on Jesus if they haven't believed? How are people going to believe in Jesus if they've never heard of him? How are they going to hear of Jesus and believe without someone preaching Christ? The reality is, is that we cannot allow our lives alone to share the gospel. We often attempt to lead others to Christ with a warped witness of our fallible lives rather than leading with the infallibility of of the truth of a supernatural gospel. The gospel cannot simply be shown with our lives. It has to be spoken from our lips. You can no more share the gospel without words than you can feed the hungry without food. And so, 
By definition, evangelism then is teaching the gospel verbally with an aim to persuade. It's not evangelism until you say some things to someone about the things that point to the one. And this morning, what we're striving for is kind of a personal pendulum swing back to the necessity of a verbal witness in sharing the gospel. That's why the title of this message is Words Required. In sharing the gospel with confidence and compassion, and above all, with boldness, we have to say something about someone and about the things that point to the one. In the same way that Jesus instructed his disciples when he walked with them, I believe that by his word, Jesus is still teaching us even today. So let's pick this up again here in verse 31. Verse 31 says this, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. I mean, if you can imagine this, disciples walk 10 miles or so into town, get kosher food, bring it back, and they're like, wait a minute, somebody, somebody, somebody should give Jesus some of this food, right? They were, they were genuinely caring for Jesus in this moment, right? Taking care of their pastor, their rabbi, their teacher. And uh, truthfully, they were probably trying to just break the awkward silence between Jesus and the woman when they came back and kind of encouraged him to eat. Now, now I'm married to a lovely Middle Eastern woman, uh, and I have a Middle Eastern mother-in-law, and I'm half Greek, I'm half Italian, so I know what it's like to push food on people, okay? <laughs> and to have people push food on you, right? And like good Middle Eastern friends, uh, I mean, the, the disciples here are pushy. That Rabbi, eat, eat something, right? That's exactly what good Middle Eastern friends would do. But the disciples had no clue of the miraculous work that was actually happening and occurring around them. Their focus was on food. And yet again, Jesus makes a gospel pivot from the physical to the spiritual. The woman spoke with Jesus about water, and Jesus is trying to communicate about living water. The the disciples are speaking with Jesus about food, and he's just like, man, something else is going on beyond the physical. Look at verse 34. So the disciples said to one another, 33, pardon me, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus' response, it was this. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Here, Jesus is redirecting the disciples to think vertically and not just horizontally, to live spiritually and not tangibly, to represent him evangelistically and not just selfishly. The disciples were focused on the things that satisfy the body, but Jesus here is shifting, pivoting their perspective on what what satisfies only the soul. Jesus is saying that spiritual food that he receives that supplies and satisfies and sustains him in his ministry is knowing that he's accomplishing the will of his Father through the work of getting the gospel out. So here's the first of three main points of application as we move through this text this morning. Number one, my role in evangelism, accomplishing the Father's will. We see this from verses 31 to 34. When it comes to evangelism, God's will in our life and in our life's work of evangelism is bold proclamation of of the word to a dying world that desperately needs him. And here Jesus is teaching and telling all of his disciples, not just these original 12 that were with him, but all of his disciples, that, that his work should be about our work. Our work should be about his work. This kind of evangelistic work should be ours as well. Jesus was, of course, the first to initiate this work, and now we get the blessing to enter into it. Let me tell you a little bit more about my Middle Eastern family. Right? 
Let me tell you a little bit about my father-in-law. My father-in-law was a man whose life deserves to be honored. Forty years ago this year, his wife and their five children immigrated from the country of Jordan in the Middle East. Uh, and they came here to the U.S. Their story was a typical immigrant story with a family tree that likely stretched back for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years in the Middle East. They were truthfully saddened to leave Jordan to settle in a country where there was little support for them by way of family or familiarity. And they worked hard, but often on the edge of poverty and hoping that there would just be greater opportunity for them. Very much a, a similar immigrant story that you would hear from anyone that uh, transitions to this country. Yet the thing that makes uh, a major decision like this unique for my wife's family was that her father's motive was not to come here to the U.S. for, you know, uh, money or, or greater opportunity. He came to the U.S. because back in Jordan, he had become a Christian. He was befriended by American missionaries who shared with him about the opportunities to get the gospel out to Arabic speakers here in the U.S., in a broader way than he even ever could back in Jordan. And so he went to seminary in Alexandria, Egypt, and prepared to leave all he knew for the sake of getting out the gospel. And with this missionary mindset, he left their life in Jordan in 1980 to, to plant uh, and support a small but, but a tight-knit network of Arabic-speaking congregations uh, here in the U.S. My father-in-law, though I never had the chance to know him, he was a bold evangelist. He was a powerful preacher, and his legacy of faith even lives on today in the lives of his children. And Lord willing, my own ministry as well. Lives like my father-in-law's should be honored and celebrated. And why is that? Because, just like in verse 34 here, he was the kind of man who understood what it meant to be sent and to be intent on accomplishing the Father's will. Now, truthfully, if the Bible were not the truth, if God's presence was not real, if Jesus was not risen and alive today, why would a man like my father-in-law sacrifice everything like this? But the Bible is true. God is real. Jesus is alive, and that changes everything. Think about your life as you consider how it is that you seek to do the will of the Father and accomplish his work. If these things that we read about here this morning, if they're not true, what are we doing here in an elementary school gym on a Sunday. This passage is a call for us to leverage our lives, our families, our marriages, our occupations, our finances, everything of who we are and what we do for the sake of doing the will of him who sent us in order to accomplish this work of expanding the kingdom. Jesus was about making and maturing and multiplying disciples to the glory of God. And CBC, I know you enough now, after a few weeks with you, to know that this is what you guys are about as well. Making disciples is what, we should, is what should be supplying and sustaining our lives, our families, and this church. This thing that should be giving us the most joy is simply to do the Father's will. And in verse 34, Jesus is communicating here, essentially saying, I'm full. I don't need food. I'm full and I'm fulfilled when I do the will of God and seek to accomplish his work. And of course, Jesus' work was fully accomplished and God's will was completely fulfilled when Christ willingly died on a cross and rose from the dead three days later. Now, the reality of who Jesus was at this point was being revealed very slowly to the disciples. At, at this point in time, they have no comprehension of the cross. They don't know anything of resurrection, right? 
They had no idea what would await Jesus in the future. I'd like to submit to you that even here in John 4, perhaps this woman at the well was more spiritually turned on and enlightened than even the disciples in these moments. That's why they're so fixated on food. They just still don't quite understand. So Jesus clarifies himself with yet another metaphor. You can see it there in verse 35. Verse 35, he says this, Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. This was uh, Jesus basically here in, in these verses is just repeating what a, a, a common proverb of the day, right? Uh, we don't have to do the hard work yet. The harvest is off into the fall. We don't uh, have to worry much about it. But Jesus, as he so often does, is like, well, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And what is he saying? He's telling us even today, he's saying, look, if you look really close, harvest time is here sooner than you think. The tops of the wheat, they're white. Perhaps in this moment, Christ and his disciples were actually standing next to a field and could see this wheat field. Uh, maybe they were looking this direction and they were actually seeing the white robes of the men coming up uh, from Sychar to hear about Jesus. But either way, Jesus is like, boys, look up, look over there. Get your focus off food and like a good farmer, get your feet in the fields. It is time to harvest, which brings us to our second point. Number one, my role in evangelism, accomplishing the Father's will. Number two, my responsibility in evangelism, discerning the Son's wisdom. When it comes to evangelism, it's a, it's a process. It's not usually an event. We probably would do well to have less eventy evangelism in our day. Although a person can go from death to life in a miraculous moment, there is much unseen that God has been doing to bring that person to belief and to repentance. And true evangelists are the ones always looking for gospel opportunities to discern a person's soul in order to communicate the truth of the gospel. Here in verse 35, when Jesus uses the term, the fields are white for harvest, do you know what he means when he says that? He, in a modern non-agrarian society uh, like we're in here in, in Chevrolet, Maryland, uh, I'm, I'm assuming we don't really know what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about the tops of wheat being white. When you look at a stalk of wheat, and especially when you look at an entire field, early in the growing process, of course, that wheat shoot first comes up, and it's a verdant green color, right? And as that wheat plant matures, it, it transitions from, uh, ripens, I should say, from, from green to what we sing about, these amber waves of grain, right? And then, in Jesus' day, without a, you know, modern crop science, how would a person know when it would be time to harvest? Well, all you needed to simply do is look out into the field and see that the top of the, the wheat, the head of the wheat, actually becomes white. And that's when uh, it's time for harvest. And to discern Jesus' wisdom here is to acknowledge that God alone is the only one who ripens a person's heart from green to amber to white. Perhaps today a more modern metaphor that we could use is simply the difference between like a green apple and a red apple, okay? Most models of evangelism today are training us on how to share the gospel with who we want to reach rather than who God is ripening to be prepared to reach. 
So, for instance, if you have an outreach ministry at, at a high school, right, uh, oftentimes people will have the mentality that if you just go in and you share the gospel with the uh, quarterback of the football team and uh, the head of the cheerleaders, oh, man, you can win the whole school to Christ, right? Or, or others have uh, church planters, for, for instance, have the mentality that uh, if we're going to have a big vision to reach the city, if you can just impact the culture shapers that are in the city, right? in the areas of education, religion, family, business, government, arts, the media, then you'll be able to win the whole city to Christ. Or, or think about missionary methods overseas that, that just say, oh, just reach the tribal chief, and if you do so, you'll, you'll reach the whole village. That sounds a little bit more like sociology than salvation to me. And the reality is, is that Jesus is teaching something not sociological here, but salvific. He's talking about the difference between a green apple and a red apple. Well, who's a person that's a green apple? A green apple is someone that's characterized, uh, it's characterized by someone who God doesn't seem to be currently softening or drawing uh, to himself. You know, people like this are mostly hard. They're distant from the things of the Lord. You, know, you kind of ask a religious question, you, you take a bite into that green apple, and you just realize, ooh, they're just sour to the taste, right? They're not interested at all. Because why? Because they have not been ripened to the truth of the gospel yet. The prototypical green apple in the gospels is the rich young ruler. What do we know about the rich young ruler? Well, we know he was young, he was rich, and he was in charge, right? The kind of guy that church planters love to reach, okay? If this guy could just become a Christian, look at how many people he could influence, right? So Christ calls to follow him, and the cost of discipleship is just too high for the rich young ruler, and so he turns his heel on Jesus, and, and the rich young ruler, essentially, he's just saying, I don't need a savior because he has no conception of his own sin. And again, most evangelistic strategies of our day, they're designed to reach and keep green apples. And sadly, even in our personal evangelism, oftentimes we spend so much time and energy into just focusing on the person we want to see reached rather than the person that God is ripening to the gospel. So what is a red apple like? Well, red apple is characterized as someone who God currently is softening and drawing to himself. The red apple is, is the kind of person that you take a bite into and they're sweet to the taste. They're, they're asking good questions. They're conversationally open to talking about the things of God. Perhaps they're even willing to come with you to a Bible study or a church gathering, right? The prototypical red apple in the New Testament is like Zacchaeus. He was just like ready. God was ripening him, right? The Ethiopian eunuch reading the scripture in a chariot. Oh, he was ready. Paul, persecuting Christians, convicted of his sin in a miraculous way on the road to Damascus. He was ready. God was ripening him, right? Even, yes, the Samaritan woman here and those from her village who eventually would come. So then you ask, how does a person move from green to red? The short answer is that God, in his sovereign grace, he's the one who ripens him. And how does God do this? Well, oftentimes he uses the painful circumstances of life to draw people to the gospel. He uses painful circumstances, trials, tests, tribulations, like what we talked about last week. God uses a variety of means to get a person to the ends of seeing Christ alone as a salve for their suffering, but also as a savior for their sin. And I've had the privilege of baptizing many people over the years that I've been in ministry. It's awesome to see but it's interesting to also see, too, because baptism testimonies, are, they're kind of the same thing over and over and over again, right? 
You hear a baptism testimony, and the general storyline of the scripture is the same, or of the testimony is the same, right? Like, I was a mess, and I didn't know it. I was lost in my sin or the effects of someone else's sin. I was in pain and in suffering. I had an existential crisis, or my wife divorced me, or I had received a cancer diagnosis. All of these circumstances that God uses to bring a person to the end of themselves. And then what do you know? Somehow, someway, God brings the gospel to that person. And then they're changed, right? And they're transformed when they repent and believe. I was this, but God did this, and now I'm changed. And perhaps you're here this morning, and you don't consider yourself a Christian. But for whatever reason, you're here in this gathering. Maybe you feel like God may be using the painful circumstances of your life to ripen you from green to red. Maybe you've experienced your own sin in such a way that you're beginning to realize that you need a savior for that sin. Or perhaps you've been put in a position where the effects of this broken world have caused you deep suffering, deep pain. Let me encourage you to turn from controlling your life to relinquishing your life through repentance and trust in Christ. Let me encourage you to seriously consider placing your faith in the truth of the gospel. And maybe you're like, well, what do you mean when you say that? What is the gospel? The gospel is this. It's the good news that the only true God, the just and gracious creator of the universe, has looked upon hopelessly sinful men and women and sent his son, God, in the flesh to bear his wrath against sin through his substitutionary death on the cross and to show his power over sin and death through his resurrection from the grave. So that everyone who turns from their sin and themselves, and trust in Christ alone as Savior and Lord will be reconciled to God forever. That's the gospel. And that if that is you this morning, you're among the best possible people to talk to about how you can make that truth a reality in your life. Pastor John, when you come up afterwards, speak with a friend that brought you. But for the rest of us, if Jesus is calling us to the responsibility of discerning the Son's wisdom in the, in the way that he ripens, How do you know if a person's red or green? Here's four quick suggestions for you. Look, learn, share, and discern. Look, learn, share, discern. Look. You have to be in the fields in order to see the crop clearly. You've got to go to the places and get near to the people where God seems to be working the most. You've got to get your feet in the fields. You cannot harvest if your feet are not in the fields. Secondly, learn. Ask good questions to pivot. A gospel, a regular conversation to a gospel conversation. Questions are great diagnostic tools to really get into the heart of a person's life. You know, asking questions like, did you grow up religious? Uh, Oh, you just moved here to the DMV? Have you found a good church yet? I mean, you ask that question, that'll open up a lot, right? A lot of personal history. Uh, Do you think there's a place called heaven? Or, Or even just go straight for the jugular, like, who do you think Jesus is? I mean, man, what a great question to ask. Look, learn, share. Share, it doesn't matter the method, just get out the message. Evangelism is less about the method you employ and more about the message that you actually proclaim. And number four, discern. What should you do with the person that God seems to be putting in front of you that's a, that's a red apple? Share the gospel with them, with boldness. And what should you do with the green apple? They're not quite ready yet. Demonstrate love and pray for them, and follow up with them, 
and stay in their life regularly. The main thing is, is that if the fruit is not ripe enough and ready to be harvested, don't bruise the fruit until it's ready. Along these lines, we must always remember that Christ is the Lord of the harvest. And when it comes to evangelism, our job is actually in distribution. Not manufacturing, it's in distribution. We can't be the originator of someone's salvation. This is a work that only the Holy Spirit can do. If you can be the originator of someone's salvation, you could probably be the eliminator of it as well. Our job is in distribution, not in marketing. Jesus doesn't need our marketing, right? Doesn't need your advertisements. Doesn't need your St. Francis of Assisi quote, right? We don't need to sell Jesus. We're probably just going to mess that up anyway. The department that we Christians are in is the distribution department. We have a message to deliver. We're just like the paper boy, right? We don't write the news. We just get it to the exact place where God wants it the most. In all of this, here's how I would encourage you. Our responsibility is not to bring people to Christ. Instead, our responsibility is to bring Christ to people. I'll say it again. Our job is not to bring people to Christ. Only the Spirit of God can bring a person into a right relationship with him. Our responsibility is not to bring people to Christ. Our responsibility is simply to bring Christ to people. So number one, my role in evangelism, accomplishing the Father's will. Number two, my responsibility in evangelism, discerning the Son's wisdom. And then lastly, three, my reliance in evangelism, recognizing the Holy Spirit's work. We'll see that in verses 36 to 38. Jesus uh, speaks again in verse 36, and he says this, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labor and you have entered into their labor. We cannot miss this. Jesus is essentially saying here, when, when is the harvest happening? Look at the first word there, first word in uh, verse 36. It's the word already. <laughs> Even while the, sins, uh, the seeds are being sowed, the harvest is happening like now, right now. So we always have to be ready to reap. In the agricultural realm, of course, usually the same farmer that sows the seed is the one who reaps the harvest. But that's not always the case in the spiritual sense. Very few souls are ever saved through the ministry of one single person. Most people have heard the gospel many times before they ever accept Christ. Therefore, the one who finally leads a person to Christ should never exalt himself as if he were the only instrument that God used in his marvelous work. The saying holds true, you rarely harvest in the same season that you plant. The Apostle Paul shared this exact sentiment in 1 Corinthians 3.16. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God alone is the one who gives the growth. Conversion is entirely the work of Jesus. The growth is holy of the Holy Spirit. You see the totality of the scripture, uh, totality of the Trinity at work here, even in these passages, right? So, so therefore, any growth that is gained is growth that only God can give. One commentator explained these last few verses here like this. He said, in a supreme sense, Jesus himself is the sower. 
But there's no reaping except after his sowing. In fact, before Jesus came, those Old Testament prophets and even John the Baptist, they were reaping and sowing. And they did so on the strength of the sowing that Christ would eventually do. Of course, Jesus did some reaping. He had gathered his disciples and other believers. He would eventually gather these Samaritans. But Jesus chiefly was the one who did the sowing. He did not leave a field that was entirely reaped bare to his disciples. But he left a field thoroughly seeded, fast maturing unto harvest. And it's that field that we step into even today. So it begs the question, who does the harder work, the sower or the reaper? The sower, of course, right? Because there's no immediate reward for sowing. You just sow the seed and you wait. And every Christian wants to be a reaper, don't they? But very few desire to be faithful sowers. Everybody wants to reap the rewards, but very few want to do the harder work of sowing seeds. Spurgeon said it like this, the church is always ready to praise her reapers, but let us never forget her sowers. So finally here in verse 36, Jesus directs our attention to the reality of eternity. In heaven, both the sower and the reaper, it says, will rejoice together. When the harvest season comes and all the crop is in the barn and everyone who has played a part in the work, what will they do? They will rejoice together. That's going to be an amazing moment. I don't know about you, but I hope that heaven is more populated as a result of my life and my work for Christ in personal evangelism, don't you? May heaven be more populated as a result of your family, your, your personal ministry, the ministry collectively of Chevrolet Baptist Church. We're trusting God for that. And in eternity, what we're going to see is sort of like a huge divine blueprint just laid out, just rolled out. And in that moment, we are going to worship God in his wisdom because he, he saved the people for his own possession. Some were tilling the hard soil and never once touched a seed. Some were sowing the seeds. Some were watering. Still others had the blessing of harvesting. Like a, like a divine schematic of salvific history, the testimonial lines of saved souls, they're going to be clearly seen in eternity. They're overlapping and interconnecting. And all of those things, all those lines will lead to the source of salvation, to the throne of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him alone be the glory. So church, what do we need to do? We need to sow wide, and we need to sow well. And then we need to wait, and then we need to pray. And we need to leave the results up to the Holy Spirit. The pressure in evangelism is off of us. God is the one who is the true planter and the true harvester in this scenario. Jesus is the one who invites us into the work. When you have opportunities to have a gospel conversation, trust the Holy Spirit. Don't be so worried about exactly what you're going to say, the right word, the perfect answer, the right feeling that you give to someone in a moment. Just be prepared and be bold with the gospel. Be biblical. Be dependent on God. Be determined with the gospel and declare God's grace. I think the reality of what Jesus is showing here when it comes to teaching his disciples or even his example with the Samaritan woman is that it just takes one. It just takes one. And that's what we see in these last few verses of the, the chapter. I won't read them, but 
Simply to say that, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed because of the woman's testimony. Just that one testimony. And then they stayed with Jesus for a few more days. And the text says, many more believed because of his word. And at the end of it all, they say here in verse verse 42, that this indeed is the Savior of the world. It just takes one. One person, one conversation, one question, one opportunity, one coffee meeting, one interaction, one opportunity to pray for someone, one opportunity to share the gospel, one sower, sowing one seed, one at a time. And most importantly, the work of one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, especially in our evangelism. Let's pray. Lord, we know that in Matthew 9, 38, you tell us to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send workers out into the harvest field. And so, Lord, in this moment, we pray for that right now. We do pray earnestly to you, the Lord of the harvest, that you would send us out into the fields. God, give us discernment with your gospel. Give us opportunities for the gospel. Give us clarity with your gospel. And Lord, let us trust in the power of your gospel to save. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.